From the Film Society of Lincoln Center, you're listening to The Close-Up. This week, we bring you a special conversation with filmmaker Alexander Payne from the 49th New York Film Festival in 2011. That year, Payne's The Descendants, starring George Clooney, was the closing night selection and would go on to win the Academy Award for Best Adapted Screenplay and receive four other nominations, including Best Picture. During the festival, Payne took part in one of our live on-cinema conversations, in which he spoke in-depth about his career and cinematic influences with then-director of the New York Film Festival, Richard Pena. Let's go now to their conversation. Welcome to the Walter Reed Theater and to the New York Film Festival. I'm Richard Pena, the chairman of the selection committee for the festival, and on behalf of the Film Society, I'd like to welcome you all. Uh, this is part of a series that we inaugurated a couple of years ago. Uh, we, last year we had Pedro Almodovar, the, no, two years ago we had Pedro Almodovar, last year Olivier Assayas, and this year I think we have a, a perfect choice, a perfect sort of follow-up in Alexander Payne. It's a series called On Cinema, and what we try and do is talk to those filmmakers whose work we love and try and find out about the films that brought them into cinema and that continue to influence and excite them. So without further ado, please welcome Alexander Payne. Hello, and thanks for coming. <laughs> Alex, let's start at the beginning. Um, what are your first memories of going to the movies, and what was it about movies that turned you on? We had a, still there, by the way, we had a neighborhood movie theater four walking blocks away, the Dundee Theater in Omaha. And uh, my earliest memories are seeing films there, and uh, I'm slightly embarrassed to say the first film I remember falling in love with and seeing maybe five or six times during its run was The Sound of Music. I, no problem. I don't with like that. it as much today. Uh, <laughs> and uh, uh, my mom was a big, avid moviegoer, and she always brought me, uh, regardless of rating. And uh, I would say between the ages of five and ten, when I started to fall in love with old movies, I, was also, I also began to adapt the taste of my older brothers. One of my brothers is here, George. Uh, so I was taught to like movies with a certain kind of hardcore edge, like uh, Cool Hand Luke, The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly, uh, King Kong, the 1933 King Kong. Those are movies we watched. Uh, One-Eyed Jacks. We loved One-Eyed Jacks. And when Those are at, the earliest ones. Right. And at what point did you become aware of the fact that there was something that we used to call art movies or movies that were a little bit different or things like that? In one direction from our house, we had the Dundee Theater. In the other direction, six blocks away, was the University of Nebraska at Omaha, which had its cine club. So in high school, on Friday nights, we would walk down there, my buddies and I, and that's where I remember seeing at you know, age 16, uh, Amarcord, uh, The Night Porter, um, Summer with Monica, films like that. So I had a whiff of it in, in Omaha still, you know, and all projected, by the way, 16 prints. And how about in college? Did you that's where it opened up. That's, that's where in college, then the cine clubs at Stanford, that's where then you start racking up the classics, Knife in the Water, Rashomon, uh, Bicycle Thieves, and, um, and then I would say, 
I saw two films in college which really blew my mind, two you know, foreign films, art films, that blew my mind and I would say also cemented my desire to try to transfer um, my love of watching films into making films. Don't tape record me too much, I get self-conscious. <laughs> and uh, those two films were Viri Diana, which I saw in Spain. I did my junior year in Spain. And that really blew my mind. I didn't know film could do that, be that ferocious. And uh, Seven Samurai, when it's newly released, released print, was uh, showing at the Castro Theater in San Francisco in 1982. I saw that when I saw Seven Samurai, and I'd already seen Rashomon and Ikiru and a couple of others, and I knew Seven Samurai was out there waiting for me somehow, but I always waited to see it projected. I didn't want to watch a crappy VHS tape or on TV. And then finally when I saw it projected, I thought, um, I'll never climb the mountain that high, but I want to be on that mountain. And I had college, I had flirted with going to uh, actually Columbia Journalism School. That was that's sort of my road not taken. And um, my parents wanted me to be, to be a lawyer, and I had to really push back on that a lot. Sorry, John Deemer, my attorney is here. Um, but that's when I made the decision quietly that I was going to apply to film school. And I had taken no film classes at all. This is all just on my own. So let's get into the clips. Uh, the first clip you've okay. chosen is actually a great auteurist clip, Naked Spur. Should we begin with that? Sure. Yeah. Okay. Oh, so just so you know, we're, we have about 90 minutes. We have four six to 10 minute clips. And then at the end, I brought uh, a 16 millimeter print of a 15 minute short film, very hard to see by uh, Carol Ballard. And we'll get to that. So that's what we're going to watch. Okay. Yes. Do you want to set up something about Naked Spur? Tell us something about it before we see it. So Naked Spur, so uh, in my 20s, I, uh, uh, I spent my 20s a lot with Kurosawa and Buñuel and... Uh, in Omaha? No. No, okay. in, no but watching. Damn. <laughs> yeah. Watching, uh, watching their films. And then uh, among American filmmakers, Anthony Mann. And uh, he continues to be one of my absolute top favorite directors and um, I started with his westerns this fantastic prodigious quintet of westerns he did with James Stewart and then I started going back you know back to his noir and forward to his epics and other things and uh, I've been watching actually a lot of Anthony Mann recently re-watching them and boy I'm getting so much out, more out of them now than I had before so uh, Naked Spur, uh, it's kind of the perfect mix of Western and noir with a really hardcore, frank brutality and a wonderful performance by James Stewart as he was in all of Mann's films and then uh, great turns by Robert Ryan and Ralph Meeker who are just, you know, fantastic. And uh, one reason I like to watch Anthony Mann films, one of the many other than their, their aesthetic and their kind of Shakespearean heart, is uh, the pictorialism of them. He is an expert at keeping the viewer's attention focused on the actors and the drama and the emotions in the foreground, while always providing spectacular backgrounds 
always, always in deep focus, always very, you, know, you watch these films, you just say, how did they find all these locations and scout them and, and stage all that action so precisely to have that landscape? And then also if you get more deeply into man films, there's a whole relationship between the psychological journey of the protagonist and the changing landscape in the film. And for my own films, which often involve a lot of location work and try to capture a sense of place, for my own work, and man has been a great inspiration and study about keeping those two things in balance, actors and emotion and story in the foreground and a strong sense of place in the background. So, so let's go to the clip. Yeah, uh, should we shut, set it up briefly? Uh, if you like, sure, of course. Real quick, James Stewart is a bounty hunter trying to bring Robert Ryan uh, back for the reward. And at this point, it's, this is the climax of the film, uh, Robert Ryan is perched atop a rock. Usually the climax of these films takes place atop, atop rocks. <laughs> and uh, you'll see what happens. Okay. Incidentally, Border Incident and The Black Book will be on TCM this coming Wednesday evening. Good to know. No music, by the way, until the end. Whole thing is just the sound of those rushing waves, rushing water. One of the things when I saw this clip, when you, you, you told me that this was the one you wanted, watching it, something that really struck me was the rhythm of it, uh, the way in which he alternates the rhythm. And can you talk a little bit about no, that? I want you that? to talk about that. What did you, what did you observe? <laughs> hey, wait a minute. No. <laughs> it just seems like a well-cut scene to me. What, what did you see about the, the... You know, I just think the, the sort of rising and falling action, the way he kind of extends certain things and things happen very quickly. I mean, there's a real rhythm to the way that the scene is cut uh, that, again, is somewhat imperceptible, but the more you watch it, since I watched it several times, you really begin to see just how careful that rhythm is within the film. And I actually wanted to ask you about that idea of rhythm in terms of your own work. Increasingly, the, the more I uh, am able to make films, the more I'm concerned almost exclusively with rhythm. Uh, you know, cert film is in one way, you know, as a practitioner, it's a constant search for economy. You want the script to be as tight as possible. You want the rhythm of the acting on the set to be as economical as possible. Uh, you want the coverage of shooting a scene to allow uh, manipulation of rhythm in the editing. And then, of course, in editing, you want everything to be as short economical and ry rhythmic as possible. It doesn't matter, even if you're making, it's not about the length of the film, you could be making a 12-hour film, but given whatever the parameters are of that film, it has to move efficiently, quickly. The, the worst thing is when people say your film's too long, and which you know I still get, but uh, yeah, rhythm. Talk about James Met Stewart. Here. Films have a metronome, and it's not a steady metronome, but sequences of film have metronome beats that, that the audience intuits, and and I remember I had a film school teacher, uh, Ed Brokaw, kind of a legendary dude at UCLA, and he would point out, he'd look, at, uh, when we'd show our work at the end of the year, he would say, um, he goes, watch the filmmakers who, when they're screening their own work for their fellow students, they're bobbing their head in time with their films. He goes, those are the real filmmakers. And I started to sort of notice that. And, and um, you know, of course, the metronome, Varies. Films can be sort of like symphonies with, you know, 
different movements, and this is Andante and Adagio and all that kind of stuff. I guess it was in my head because I've been teaching. We're going to see that. We're seeing what one of our clips, sorry to interrupt, okay. but one of our clips is Casino, and man alive, that's all about rhythm. Now, I've been uh, teaching a class where I've been using Tarkovsky a lot. He talks about it constantly in his book, Sculpting in Time, about just the importance of really finding rhythm in the film and, and the correct rhythm for the correct film and things like that. Yeah. Yeah. Talk a little bit about James Stewart's performance here. Uh, you know, I was thinking the, the critic Richard Dyerwin said that stars are actors with biographies. That is, people we've seen, we've gotten to know, we come to feel. And obviously, both Stewart and Mann were taking a big chance with this kind of characterization for so? Mr. Be, Deeds. Be, being so dark or yeah. so tortured in the American cinema or something. Well, I'll tell you this much. One thing that blows me away about Stewart in the 50s, and I think that our modern day movie stars could really learn from them is not being afraid of playing dark characters, not being afraid of playing bad guys, because you hear all these stories about the top stars, oh, well, they turn down this role or that role because they don't want to be seen as bad. I think it's a huge mistake. I think they're asking for uh, their careers to be doomed, quite frankly. So when you see the work that, that uh, Stewart did for Mann and Hitchcock, notably, in the 50s, and then you get, in 1968, you have uh, Henry Fonda shooting a seven-year-old boy in the face for Sergio Leone. Oh, you didn't give a shit. Yeah, sure, I'll, I'll shoot a seven-year-old kid in the face. Who cares? You know, is it a good part? And those guys had long careers until they died. So. And when directing somebody like well, Jack Nicholson... Let me just say it. I'm, I'm just so happy sure. that uh, someone with the, such an inner benevolence as Stuart... Uh, was able to be alive in the 50s when the, the uh, tenor of the timber of uh, American films turned so dark. And, you know, obviously working with a full-on noir director like, like Mann uh, and a sadist like Hitchcock, you know, <laughs> that he surrendered to those guys. We're, we're it's the better for it. It's great when stars who are, have that inner goodness are cast as uh, sons of bitches. You know, you think of what Billy Wilder did with Fred McMurray. Mm -hmm. When, in your own work, when dealing with someone like Jack Nicholson or George Clooney, does their past as actors come into play for you? No. Interestingly, and it kind of drives me crazy. It, 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 you know, when I made About Schmidt and uh, uh, interviews were, uh, well, we've never seen Jack Nicholson with a woman his own age before, the, his wife, that Midwestern housefrau in, in Schmidt or... Uh, this one, what is it, The Descendants? Uh, <laughs> wow. The, the Hawaii one. That, oh, well, we've never seen George Clooney play a father before, or how would someone uh, cheat on George Clooney? Those questions have nothing to do with my films. In, in the moment of making a film, I'm, you know, I'm not naive. I, you know, I'm not trying to be disingenuous. I have some idea of their iconography or whatever, but in the moment of making that film, I'm only concerned about my film and their actors playing those parts, period. I find nowadays that probably of all <coughs> classic American genre, the hardest to teach my students is Westerns. People just nowadays don't have interest in, in Westerns, and just your thoughts on that, and what can Westerns still teach Well, which ones students? are you showing them? Well, <laughs> all the good ones. Are they too impatient even for Leone? Are, are they too impatient? I think impatient that with, by the time you get to Leone, I think there's an ironic quality to them that I think Yeah, but students... it's also a good start. Right. Mm -hmm. That if you, can, if you can show them once upon a time in the West, then lead them to the tin star, 
you know, through Henry Fonda, and then maybe go back to something cool, and if they like noir, show them Devil's Doorway. You know, who knows? Maybe you can hook them. Mm -hmm. But there are a lot of, uh, I mean, I personally, I'm a lot of film cognoscenti here. I personally am not a huge Ford Western fan, other than Searchers, which you could say is influenced by man. Um, but if you're showing them a lot of Ford, I, could, I might be on their side. <laughs> <laughs> the stuff just doesn't do it for you, or what? You know, uh, as brilliantly pictorial as so many of his films are, and I'm not taking anything, and I've studied his films for that pictorial quality, and he remained, in a way, a silent filmmaker in the best way his whole career. There's a lot of cornball crap you have to put up with. Um, there are many exceptions, and I, there are many Ford films I love, and, but uh, I just saw, um, what's the one with Dr. Samuel, uh, Samuel Mudd in 1935? Uh, Prisoner of Shark Island. Man, that knocked me out. So I'm not, it's not a blanket condemnation of Ford, but anyway, I'll shut up now. <laughs> so what should we do for the next one? Should we move to La Notte or move to something else? Your dealer's choice. Okay, La Notte. La Notte. Okay, so... Uh, one of the directors whose films I've watched all of, except for his documentary on China, is Antonioni. And in my 30s, I fell pretty, pretty much in love with his films. Um, and among them, this one and maybe you know, La Ventura, of course, and The Girlfriends, Le Amique, are maybe my absolute favorites in The Passenger. But this one really... Has, has a tidy screenplay and, and moves along. And it's the one Antonioni film in which I fall asleep the least. Because <laughs> one of the reasons I ended up seeing Antonioni films over and over and over again is that I fought, fell asleep in every one of them, which I forgave myself for, and I considered it ultimately part of the experience, you know, contributing to that, <laughs> o, o, the oniric quality of Antonioni. So, and then I'd have to watch the film again hoping I wouldn't fall asleep during the same part so I could see that part. So anyway, but this is the one I don't fall asleep during. And uh, You prefer to Eclipse, for example. Yeah, I definitely fall asleep in that one, mm -hmm. as much as I like it. Um, and Red Desert, is a, although it's Blu-ray edition, is stunning, by the way. It makes me see Red Desert in a whole new way. But yeah, that's a snoozer for me. Um, He's still one of my favorite directors. So this one has, uh, we're gonna watch the ending. One of the things I'm sure we all have our own private lists of is favorite endings of movies. Because man, when movies have great endings, there's just nothing better. And you're haunted for the rest of your life. And this has one of the all-time great endings, I think. And, and it's so nice that he could make a film, I think, um, about a feeling. And that feeling being the, uh, the cowardice or the lack of vision that a relationship, to recognize that a relationship you're in is over, that it's dead, well, moribund if not completely dead, and you just haven't had the courage to, uh, to end it. What is it Oscar Wilde said something about the when you go to kill the thing you love, the brave man does it with a sword, the coward with a kiss. And uh, so it, that feeling got translated into a story about a couple who are definitely at the end of their relationship, and it all takes place 
over at a party, kind of like the leopard, at a party overnight, and I won't go into too many, many details, but at the party, he, they both have flirtations with other party goers, and a bunch of other stuff happens, and then finally this ending. Okay. Let's go on to La Note. Uh, yeah, yikes. To talk about that. About what? About La Note. Well, geez Louise. First of all, uh, it's nice that he can make all that talk, talk, talk still visual. How does he do that? Plus, I think the quality of the black and white photography is so stunning. Sorry about that. We had to use a second-rate way of projecting these clips today in order to be able to show 16 millimeter at the end. That's why we don't have a higher quality, right, Richard? Mm -hmm. But when you see this projected, just, uh, you know, knocks your socks off. And... Um, you talked about the ending. Do you feel you this really ends the film? I mean, in a way, some people would call this an open ending. What, what more would there be to say? Mm -hmm. They're sort of stuck. That's, that's just a, we're, we're supposed to think about it. Mm -hmm. And it's so haunting. When, when things are left open ending, as you, or openly ended, as you say, they're, um, you're left with questions, and, and again, to use this word for the third time, you're haunted more. This is a haunting ending. It's a good example of a bad example, <laughs> you know, of, of a relationship, and you're supposed to be thinking about it, I guess. Mm -hmm. What about the dialogue scenes when Antonin will just cut to their backs, and you see their backs? Yeah, how about that? <laughs> yeah, and it was interesting, too. I'd never noticed, but I'd noticed the shot before, but there's only one uh, POV shot in it, which is her side close-up, which, uh, you know, in a way you could say it's just uh, logistically a cutaway for what he was doing, but also it pulls you into Marcello's character a little bit. Never really noticed that before, thought about that. Mm -hmm. I love how they're walking you know, toward that little embankment where they sit, and as they're walking, you know, they walk toward those trees, and they're compared to the trees visually. Uh, but he keeps the framing down. You barely see the sky. You see all the lawn, and then those trees, and they're kind of walking up in frame. It's just really interesting framing. Mm -hmm. He, by the way, as architectural as his uh, shooting style was, as, as uh, deliberate as it seems. He claims never to have storyboarded. He said uh, something which I, as a practitioner, find very liberating, and I share this with film students. When I talk to film students, he would say, no, I uh, get on the set uh, with the cinematographer and the actors, and we figure out what the actors are going to do, and I just make a documentary about it which is a very liberating way to think, to, to approach a day's work of filmmaking. I think about that every day when I'm shooting. Just make a documentary about it. And he, of course, came from documentaries right. in the 40s. Yeah. What but do you boy, think about I. in this sequence or in general, the idea that sometimes people also talk about relationship to Antonioni, the idea of dead time on screen. I mean, here, for example, a long scene where they're just walking, whatever, where Theoretically, not much is going on. Yeah, it, one would have a hard time getting away with that uh, in, in modern commercial American filmmaking, both at the studio level. I have my studio executives here. They agree, I'm sure they would agree with me. They'd kill me in previews over, why all that dead time? I mean, I have in, a very intelligent studio executives, but they would detect in a larger commercial 
American audience a certain impatience with that, you know, above a certain budget level. So it's tough to do that stuff in America these days above a certain budget level. Mm -hmm. But uh, if you can sink into those rhythms, each filmmaker, each good filmmaker invites you to enter into the world of his or her, again, that word rhythms. Ozu has his own rhythms, and you have to let go of where you are in waking life and submerge to a different level before you can start to understand and then perceive that language, what linguistically is being expressed. Mm -hmm. And I like that exercise with certain directors and, and ones that I particularly like, I just mentioned, Ozu and this guy. I like letting go of myself and going into their levels. Mm -hmm. What about this whole period of filmmaking? I mean, this, you know, for many of us, grand period of the... Early 60s. Uh, of the Renees. E every the week a masterpiece. Yeah. Yeah. Lucky you. <laughs> but lucky us that we have such access to them now. I can have now three times a day a masterpiece, you know, at home with Netflix, and it's magnificent. Wow. How does it affect you as a filmmaker? Do you draw ideas from this stuff? From what stuff? From the stuff from the 60s, from this period of kind of modernist cinema, the Bergmans, Antonioni's, all this. What, what place does it have today in terms of... Well, uh, I can't say for other uh, uh, film geeks or practitioners. I am much more attracted to the Italians in this period than to the French. I'm not particularly... My good friend Kaveh Zahedi is here. He would be... I would predict more in the Godard camp and he has patience for that I remember we were in film school together I did not I've never really had much patience for Godard just you know de gustibus just a taste thing um, uh, Truffaut his humanity kind of straddles those lines but I'm much more with uh, Fellini and Antonioni and uh, and the, the the comic directors Rizzi and Jeremy of that period um, not so much modernist, but, mm -hmm, but mm -hmm. European cinema yeah. in the early 60s. Mm -hmm. Yikes. You know. And then put, throw on top of that Lawrence of Arabia and what else was going on between 59 and 65. Yes. Jeez Louise. No, I mean, that decade is just amazing how much you can go back No, and to then you had Frankenheimer finding. working in this country, mm -hmm. kind of doing new weird stuff, having that dialogue with European work. And mm -hmm. Audiences almost seemed more open back then to experimentation or at least trying it out. Things were breaking open. I, I, I hope we will have another period like that in popular cinema, at least for at least in the big cities uh, today. So let's move on to our. By the way, I have to plug a great film. I, you've already shown it, but the Iranian film *A Separation*. Man, I think I hate seeing saying making declarations like this, but that's sure. a film of the year. That is just an unbelievable film. I, I mean, I'm a practitioner, and I think. I mean, I'm watching that film thing, and I can't believe there was a film crew there. I'm just watching that big train wreck in slow motion, all those people making the wrong decision. Yikes. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you like that quality when suddenly it appears as if there's not a film being made, I'm just looking through a window. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I also like it when there's a grand sense of cinema, and I'm thinking about, you know, the it's brilliant... Fine. Oh, sorry. But I also like the opposite, when you're aware of this grand sense of cinema and that they were doing it. I mean, there's a great difference between Leone and this guy who did a separation. Great difference between those two films, and I embrace them both. Mm -hmm. 
So, moving on, do you want to talk about Casino? Let's do really Casino. Pleased. Let's get a little... Yeah, uh, I was really glad that you chose that. It's a, one of my very favorite Scorsese's. Oh, just real quick, I have to share my Ulcerans, because it was tough to come up with just four... <laughs> with just four clips, and I know we're starting to run out of time, but here are the ones that I turned down to show, to share with you guys today. A Special Day, School is a Special Day, Summertime, uh, White Nights, Visconti's White Nights, Ride the High Country, I Love the Ending of Dersu Uzala, uh, The Landlord. I was thinking about, I didn't tell you this, but I was thinking about Saura's Elisa Vida Mia. Mm -hmm. That's one of my favorites. Uh, Fireman's Ball, Jim Taylor's here, my co-writer, and that's a film very influential on some of our work. And of course, Viridiana. It's always great to watch The Beggar's Banquet and Viridiana. So those are some of my also-rans. So. But Casino, I mentioned it to Richard when we were talking on the horn, and um, he, we agree that it's an un, I mean, we've all seen it, but it is somehow in Scorsese's canon underappreciated for the masterpiece that it is. And, and then I know the, the standard point of view is, oh, but, you know, it's, it's like we prefer Goodfellas because it's that same kind of drunken style. But there's something about Casino that gets under my skin. It's nothing against Goodfellas. I, you know, worship the film. But it's particularly the first 45 minutes of Casino, people talk about 90s American cinema in the first 20 minutes of Saving Private Ryan as being this magnificent, prodigious example of filmmaking, which it is. But for my taste, I like the first 40 minutes of Casino, which is equally prodigious. And I would say together, uh, Saving Private Ryan and Casino, the first 20 and 40 minutes, are kind of two sides, two complementary sides of the American experience, as seen by equally gifted but radically different uh, filmmakers. And Richard and I were talking before uh, this meeting today, and he had stumbled upon Casino like on AMC, uh, uh, expurgated with commercials and couldn't stop watching it. And for me, it's to say if I ever stumble upon Casino, if I come home uh, late at night or I'm tired, and I just want to put on something to relax and unwind, it's one of those chicken soup films. <laughs> that I can just turn on the first 40 minutes of Casino and be knocked out again, um, you know, or watch the first half hour of eight and a half or something like that. So uh, let's just watch it. This okay. is just no setup for this one. Yeah, you've all seen it. All right. Send shivers. Yikes! So beautiful. <laughs> uh, I did a TV pilot a couple years ago for the TV show Hung, and I had the Dolly Grip, who had been on. Casino. He had been the dolly grip on Casino. He lost 40 pounds <laughs> while making Casino. And he let me know, I mean, I was starstruck by being with Casino's dolly grip. And he let me know <laughs> the whole film is dolly and crane. There are only two Steadicam shots in the whole film, neither, neither one of them here. Um, yeah. And uh, my own film, Election, not to, I mean, I genuflect before this film, but Election is made by a young guy. Uh, really in love with Casino, because Casino had just come out. And that visual style and that rhythm uh, had a certain residual influence on how I shot Election. Talk about the use of the pop music soundtrack. I mean, something that Marty's been doing for a long time. Sure is good. <laughs> <laughs> what is there to say about it other than how, how they, um, his musical sense is so very fine. 
I mean, I, while watching this, I was, because I was thinking a little bit about the music, and I don't have a real answer to your question, but I was thinking about how the rhythm of the action so wonderfully matches the rhythm of the voiceover, how the voiceover is edited, and the rhythm of the, you know, of the, of the stage, the rhythm of the music matches the rhythm of the action and the editing. Now, there are sometimes, like Leone would play, he ha would have the score recorded at least for Once Upon a Time in the West, famously, and play uh, Morricone's music for the crane operator and for the dolly grip. And I know Marty did that in the final sequence of After Hours, when the steady cam goes among all of the, he knew what piece of music he wanted. I think it's Mozart, and he played that at that time. But it's almost as though he were playing the music there for the actors and the dolly grips, but of course I'm sure he wasn't. It was all discovered after the fact and found. That must have been so terribly time consuming. What do you think about the music? It's great to me because I, you know, I guess I see it as this great essay film in a way about American capitalism in a way and the idea of putting that with this American pop culture. Yeah. It's, just, it's just a kind of wonderful combination that yeah. the, he puts these two together and they work so well. Well, and he had started that with Goodfellas. I mean, there are so many people who prefer, it's not that this matters, but who prefer Goodfellas over Casino, at least in their memory. But there's another way, <laughs> there's another way you could see, just as Kagemusha was a dry run for Ron, there's another way technically in which Goodfellas was a dry run for Casino. Mm -hmm. Because that same visual style was just amplified and given a much bigger scope in Casino than it had had in, in Goodfellas, I feel. Mm -hmm. Is music for you a real challenge in your films? Is that something that's come generally easy, or is it really a, a struggle to get the right music in your films? How would it be a struggle? I don't know. I mean, some people say it really takes a long time to find the right one, or is it something that comes along? No, it takes uh, care, but I'm uh, quite proud of the use of music yes. in my films. And mm -hmm. uh, I finally, the, my first four features were with a composer, with some, also some, some pre-existing music. Uh, but this new film, The Descendants, is the first one I've done with 100% pre-existing music, which was just a delight. And, and all uh, Hawaiian music, and trying to make Hawaiian music fit, which, uh, which is often, in many ways, monochromatic. There's a lot of Hawaiian music really does sound the same. Mm -hmm. So to find that stuff that has the, var the variation to mm -hmm. serve as score and support both comedy and emotion. Would you like to stay with using uh, pre-recorded or pre-existing music or just depends one on the project? One great benefit, and you directors out there will know, one great benefit of using pre-existing music is you don't have to uh, give up temp love. Because often you fall in love with the movie you've been, you've been temping a film with before the final score is put in. And then you have to say, oh, God, I hope the composer can do something as good as what we've been temping with. And then when you, you're heartbroken about it, it's called having temp love, as you know. And, and I didn't have to put up with that in this film. <laughs> this sequence we just showed introduces Sharon Stone. And talk about introducing characters. I mean, maybe what Marty does here and just in your own work. You mean giving somebody some new player entering the proscenium kind of a big entrance? Mm -hmm. Well, you try to do that. <laughs> Period. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, uh, I don't have much to say about that other than it's something you're conscious of introducing, uh, interestingly, someone who's going to be a major player. You know, what's that Godard film at the beginning? You're on the back of her head for the first. Viva Savi. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
Um, I don't know, have much to say about it. One thing I do, um, by the way, I misspoke before, and it was Todd McCarthy who had stumbled upon Casino, not, not you. We were all talking about it before. Uh, I haven't seen Force of Evil in a long time, but I understand that Scorsese was influenced by Force of Evil, who has a, an explanatory voiceover at the beginning explaining how numbers running operated, and apparently that was an influence on this film. Mm -hmm. Talk about that voiceover. What do you think about voiceover in film? For a long time, I remember it seemed that it was anathema for I like it. it. I use it in almost all my films. Mm -hmm. Going back to my work at UCLA, I'm a big fan of voiceover in film when, uh, when of course, when well used. And some of our favorite films are voiceover films, Sunset Boulevard and uh, Malick's Two Early Films and um, Clockwork Orange. And I love being told a story. I even like third person, I mean, this is first person, but in a way he's kind of a third person, omniscient narrator here saying how things run. How about the voiceover in uh, Barry Lyndon telling me a story? I love that. I think, I've said this before, forgive me, but I think uh, voiceover is one of the greatest contributions of talking cinema. It really is. Here, I think the voiceover almost frees up the images in a way. He can do all kinds of things because yes. you have that standard voiceover. That well, especially constant. he's saying visually, look over here. Okay, now look over here. Now look over here. And you have to know this. And you have to know this. You have to, what's wrong with heavens? We're not doubting the power of his visuals just because there's some voiceover. And on the contrary, it all works together magnificently. It's just a magnificent film. So, want to take us to Redbeard. And why did you choose Redbeard? So all the I had to have some, how are we doing on time? Uh, we're going to run a little late. Is that okay? Fine with me. Okay. So we have two more clips. Okay. So we've got Red Beard, which is about eight minutes. And then the short, if you want to stay, is about 14 minutes. So we'll try to keep our discussion down. Uh, I'm a, as you know, I'm a big Kurosawa fan. Um, I've seen all of his films, most of them more than once, except one. There's one of his films I've still never seen. And... Uh, this, The Seven Samurai is the film I've probably seen more times than any other, other film. I've probably seen it at least 50, 60 times. Probably that in modern times. I've seen the most times. Um, but between when he made his first feature in 42 to 1965, his last black and white film, and before a five or six year hiatus, um, well, this was kind of his summing up. It's, he, he went out on a really high note. And it's a historical film, not during samurai period so much, a little bit later, about 1850s. And uh, it's a really fierce film about how people should simply be nice to one another. You know, he, he, was, he really could distinguish between being good, being kind, and being nice. He was sort of, I strike what I said before, he was less interested in being nice, but very interested in being kind, and often they're, you know. Um, so this, sh should I set up the story? Have you, has anybody seen Redbeard before, Akahige? Yeah, a few people. A foolhardy young physician just out of medical school, thinks he's on, a way, on his way to be a physician in a local court. Yet his father, as I seem to, arranges for him to get waylaid at a 
rural clinic for the poor, which is run by this uh, very, well, uh, uh, he's a martinet, this character played by Mifune, who's a local physician who's fiercely dedicated to caring for the poor. And over the course of the film, you know, it's a coming-of-age story for this young physician as he learns just the true nature of compassion and of the, the true use of medicine and, and so forth. So in this, this clip is, is very much toward the end. So this young physician, his first real patient, and Redbeard, Mifune, says, take care of her. And it's a girl they picked up in a whorehouse, probably about 13, 14 years old, turning tricks and uh, having to scrub the floor, and with, probably with a venereal disease. She's picked up with a terrible fever. And it's up to this young physician to cure her. And he finally does, he finally breaks, she's, and she's like a feral cat, she wants nothing to do with him, and she refuses all of his kind advances, but finally breaks through. And then the chain continues, and there's a little beggar boy who steals food from the clinic and she begins to take an interest in him and take care of him. Now, this could be done in a corny way or this could be done in a beautiful and fierce way. And so where we pick this up, this little beggar boy and his family have, in a sort of very Japanese way, decided to commit suicide because they just can't take it anymore. They'd rather go on to the afterlife. And uh, they've hauled the family in. They've all taken poison. Sorry, this is long-winded. Um, and this young girl is desperately concerned about the little five-year-old boy, this imp. And uh, here it is. Anything else? Should I say anything else about it? Just hoping we have the right sequence. The one where she's taking medicine. No, this was at the end. This this isn't. The, no, this is chapter 26 at the end. Oh. This is the wrong sequence. I think. Oh no. Well. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, this is the one where the women shout down the well. I don't know how they got it wrong. Well, shall we? We'll show it anyway? Or we can move on to Priscilla. Let's show it anyway. So okay, well, anyway, forget all that. <laughs> we read your mind. Very beautiful. Yes. Very beautiful. What are some of your thoughts on that clip? I like that close-up with her pimply forehead. <laughs> that long close-up. What about that final shot, that, that sort of decision of Kurosawa to do that whole long scene with the medicine just in one shot? It's so beautiful. Well, why, but by this time, he was, I mean, as montage-oriented as Kurosawa was, by this point in his career, he was holding shots as long as he could. And uh, he had also developed his shooting style by this point in his career, which was uh, rehearsing a scene, rehearsing a scene, rehearsing a scene, and then maybe shooting it once with two or three cameras. And um, you know, he, and there are many, many, many long takes in this film. Yeah. How about for yourself, how much do you decide before you get to the set, the length of the shot, or do you feel it as you're out there? You feel it uh, as you go, but I do, I do subscribe to that thrill of accomplishing a magnificent long take. I, th I and you know we can each talk about our favorite long, beautifully choreographed takes in, in our favorite films, but I love that. I, I personally uh, like to remain in a shot. This is both on the set but in, in editing until the last possible moment. I don't 
seek cutting, unless you're doing a montage or something like that. But I like to choreograph for the camera as much as possible. Anything else about this sequence? I was really struck also by the young woman's performance. It's so stylized next to the naturalness of Nakadai and Mifune. Yeah, that's not Nakadai, though. No, sorry. I, I, forget, I forget the guy's name. But boy, what a star Mifune was. Yeah. What, what a commanding presence on mm -hmm. the screen. Yeah. Um, and as time passes, you do have to have a certain generosity with Kurosawa because some... I hesitate to use the word kabuki, but some large, very Japanese expressionist acting styles um, are in many of his films that you wish on one some level were as naturalistic as other, as other acting in his films. You have to just kind of put up with that. Okay. But, but boy, th what a star um, Mifune was <laughs> in his, the, the rhythm, the, the acting rhythm of that, of that scene, how his patience with her and her, the decreasing you know, the, the way she's expecting to be punished and then isn't. And then how she starts by really flicking the, the spoon away and then by the end is just like this. It's very beautiful, very well done, very well done. Mm -hmm. And you want to tell us about your, the clip that you brought, the okay, short good. film? So I think we should finish on this and then let, mm -hmm. let that end and let people go, don't you think? It's, that's up, yeah. Okay, good. So uh, I've been buying 16 millimeter films off of eBay. <laughs> and one of the films that I put out a search for, and it finally turned up, and I've scored two prints of it, I had seen in film school, because at UCLA, they had had a, a day or two day long festival of great early, early work by later very well-known directors. Excuse me. And one of the ones they showed was this film, made by Carol Ballard, and you know who Carol Ballard was, Never Cry Wolf, Black Stallion, etc., and a, a contemporary at UCLA of Coppola's. Coppola still points to him, Ballard, as being the most talented of that generation. And so I saw this film in film school, uh, The Perils of Priscilla. It was made with a grant from the Pasadena Humane Society, and it's about the, uh, what happens to a Siamese cat when her uh, family forgets about her as they go on vacation. Shot by Stephen Burham, the cinematographer, and uh, I think it's one of the best movies ever made. When I, I programmed it at Telluride a couple of years ago and Tom Luddy said that Chris Marker has also famously called it a masterpiece. But I, for my money, it's as, uh, sorry to be comparing things to Spielberg, but it's as wonderful an example of pure cinema as Duel. I still think Duel is one of Spielberg's bests. So enjoy. Th anything else you want to say before no. we close? Thanks very much for doing Yeah, thanks for having me. Thanks for this opportunity. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks. Um, thanks for in inviting my, I'll thank you again, you know, officially tomorrow night, but for inviting my film to be a part of this wonderful festival. I'm really proud of that and proud to have had this opportunity today, and thanks for coming. Great. Thanks, Alan. The Close-Up from the Film Society of Lincoln Center is produced by Michael Odemark. Our opening music is by Steelism. You can subscribe to The Close-Up on iTunes and Stitcher. 
The Film Society of Lincoln Center is a nonprofit arts organization based in New York City, supported by individuals just like you. Founded in 1969 to celebrate American and international cinema, the Film Society presents year-round programming recognizing established and emerging filmmakers, supporting important new work, and enhancing awareness, accessibility, and understanding of the moving image. To learn more about what we do and support the Film Society by becoming a member, visit filmlink.org, F-I-L-M-L-A-N-C.org. The Film Society of Lincoln Center. Film lives here.